Welcome back to America on Trial. I'm your host, Josh Hammer. Thrilled to bring you this brand new daily podcast where we get you all the legal news that you need to get through your day to feel prepared and informed as we head towards this most monumental and historic of presidential elections this November, a rematch between former president and perhaps future president Donald Trump and the incumbent president, the doddering dolt from Delaware himself, Joe Biden. Let's start, as always, by going around the horn. The big news this week, for the most part, we continue to wait. First of all, in New York City, we're continuing to wait for a verdict from Justice Arthur and Goron in the Tish James fishing expedition when it comes to alleged fraud against the Trump organization. It was actually just yesterday where Justice Ngoron was expected to file his decision. So that could drop literally any day now. That could, ha- that could happen essentially any hour. It could happen any minute. Some people have been speculating that it might come tomorrow on Friday. Some people have been saying it might come early next week. A deeply chilling and harrowing case when it comes to entrepreneurship and small business formation seems like weaponized government in its most unvarnished and unambiguous form. They are seeking $370 million in damages. Absolutely insane. We'll have a lot more to say about that when it drops. Aside from that case in New York City, the two main Trump-related cases this week that are getting attention are the 14th Amendment, Section 3, Insurrection Clause. The lead-up to the oral argument at the, at the Supreme Court, this huge oral argument that is set for next Thursday, one week from today, February 8th. Just some, some final file dates at the Supreme Court this week. So, for example, coming up on Monday, you have the, it's the last day for former President Trump's reply brief. It's the last filing in all likelihood before the actual oral argument at the court next Thursday. That's coming up on Monday. And aside from that, the drama when it comes to Trump this week is down in Georgia. Now, it's looking like Donald Trump could get off extraordinarily lucky in Georgia. It is way too early to conclude that, of course, but when these indictments dropped last year, when the Alvin Bragg indictment, the Fonnie Willis indictment, and the two Jack Smith federal indictments, when these all dropped last year, many of us, myself very much included, leapt to the conclusion that the Georgia prosecution was quite possibly going to be the most dangerous for Donald Trump for numerous reasons, one of which it's obviously a very blue county, Fulton County, Georgia. This is Atlanta. It is an 80-20 at best, you, you might say, Democrat county. And furthermore, you have a very sprawling, wide-ranging, all-encompassing, you might even say, RICO statute that Georgia has on the books. It is somewhat modeled on the federal RICO statute, which is the racketeering statute. It's what federal prosecutors have used for a very long time, going back to the days of bootlegging and the 60s and all of that to crack down on organized crime. But Georgia's RICO statute is quite a bit broader. So that was another reason why many of us were very concerned about the legal fate of Trump and his co-defendants there in Georgia. And then finally, Georgia is a state case. And what that means is that even if Donald Trump were to become a president, he would not, technically speaking, be able to pardon himself for state crimes. There actually are some people who are saying that. We should not dismiss that out of hand. There are some other legal experts who are attempting to argue that the president could actually even pardon himself for state crimes. I I saw 
the great one, Mark Levin, advanced an argument last year, and Mike Lee, the esteemed senator from Utah, and also my former boss back in the Senate from about a decade ago, I saw Mike Lee say that Mark might be onto something there. I'm not personally buying it myself. We'll save that for a deep dive analysis, perhaps on a future episode. In any event there, as a technical matter of black letter constitutional law, a president cannot pardon himself for state crimes. That's fairly, fairly straightforward. Nonetheless, Given all the drama down in Georgia, given this scandalous affair between Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade, given the fact that there are all sorts of new allegations that have been corroborated by some sources of constant communication and seemingly straightforward out-in-the-blue corruption when it comes to collusive coordination between the state of Georgia and the Biden White House counsel, their office, about bringing these cases there— This trial could be delayed even more than it actually is. So it was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that just confirmed in reporting over the last 24 to 36 hours or so that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade themselves are both going to testify at this big upcoming hearing there in Georgia on February 15th. They have been subpoenaed. This involves the motions to disqualify them from hearing the case in its entirety. These motions are being brought by Michael Roman, who is one of Donald Trump's co-defendants. He has also been indicted in this Fonnie Willis-Rico case, and he is seeking to have the charges against him dismissed. Michael Roman served as director of Election Day operations for Donald Trump's 2020 presidential campaign. He is facing seven counts. And, you know, I was talking about this with Megyn Kelly on her show yesterday. We really owe Michael Roman a, a huge, a huge pat on the back, a huge thank you for your service, good sir. Without him, we wouldn't have known about any of this stuff. None of this would have come to the, to the surface there. None of this would have come out about Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade buying tickets together to go travel to Miami and San Francisco, about what Julie Kelly was reporting on Twitter last week, about how it came up in a, in a pre-trial hearing just last week that, that the DA's office there in Fulton County has been in, in touch multiple times with the Biden White House counsel's office over the past year or so. This, this is huge deal. Huge deal stuff. So Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade will be heard from at this upcoming hearing on February 15th in front of the judge there, a judge by the name of Scott McAfee. There were 10 others who also received subpoenas, including several employees from the Fulton County DA's office, those who are working under Fonnie Willis. This is very juicy stuff here. So what Michael Roman is actually alleging is that the DA's office is intentionally withholding information sought in the Open Records Act request. So they filed an Open Records Act request. That would essentially be Georgia's state version of FOIA. FOIA would be the congressional, the federal statute when it comes to open records. So Michael Roman, the Trump co-defendant in Georgia, who has really done a huge, tremendous public service, frankly, in getting all of this to the forefront, he is seeking to learn more about what we just discussed. How corrupt is Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade? Just how much in touch has the Fulton County's DA's office been with the Biden White House counsel? These are very reasonable questions to ask if you are a co-defendant in a criminal case, especially one of this magnitude. And their allegation is that Georgia is stonewalling. So big explosive stuff there in Georgia. That hearing is coming up on February 15th. And, you know, as of right now, the Georgia trial is not set to begin until August 5th. That's what I have in my legal calendar, in my legal notes. 
that thing could only get pushed back further and further potentially if this drags out even further. We are certainly keeping a, a close eye on that. And another bit of Trump election legal related news. So February 1st means a lot of things to some people for political junkies. It means that we have a lot of information that we didn't have the day before when it comes to the FEC. There's a lot of FEC, Federal Election Commission, information that comes in due to annual deadlines there. And we now have a better sense as to what Donald Trump is actually spending when it comes to his legal dues. And this is an article that came in overnight from Politico, they they looked into the expenditures. Politico, obviously, a left-leaning and in many ways horrifically biased publication, but when it comes to actually taking out a calculator and adding up the numbers, I think they can be reasonably trusted. So they tallied up the numbers here, and here is their conclusion. They said, quote, the expenditures provide a stark illustration of how Trump's courtroom issues have not just defined his campaign, but begun to overwhelm it. That's some editorial flair to be sure, but perhaps they're onto something a little bit at least. They continued, quote, in total, the former president spent roughly $50 million in donor funds on legal expenses over the course of 2023. So that's $50 million just from donations to the campaign, to assorted super PACs, and various other 501c3s or c4s. This is really a lot. I mean, that's just in donor funds. Who knows how much he is actually cracking open his own checkbook to help fund his legal defenses there. By the time this thing is all said and through, we're talking here about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees there. That seems to be one of their big tactics, is to just try to bankrupt Donald Trump here. Really, really just chilling stuff. Obviously, Donald Trump's net worth and how liquid his assets are has been a constant source of back-and-forth discussion for many years now in Washington, D.C. political circles. But regardless of what the man is worth, this is just weaponized government at its absolute worst. No one should be bankrupted in legal fees of this nature, especially in this high-profile, weaponized, politicized prosecution fashion. What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are, and it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. 
for today's deep dive, there was a huge legal development yesterday in my state, the state of Florida, that I think is talking about, we're talking about a little bit here. If you recall, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who just bowed out of the presidential race after his distant second place finish in the Iowa caucuses a couple weeks ago, he has been in, in an ongoing legal battle against the Walt Disney Company for a while now. This goes back to early 2022 when Governor Sanders in the state of Florida was passing the so-called don't say gay bill. That would be the bill that didn't actually have the word gay or homosexual or anything like it in it, but that was what the mainstream media tangentially dubbed the legislation anyway. It was actually known as the Parental Rights and Education Act. And it was a prudent law. I would say, if anything, it didn't go far enough. The law proscribed the teaching of gender ideology and sexual orientation, gender identity, all of that, from K through third grade. And many of us thought that it should go a heck of a lot further. But it was a, it, but it was a good start at the time there. And it was around this time the Walt Disney Company started speaking out, started speaking out opposed to this legislation in favor of indoctrinating our vulnerable nation's youth with the besotting ideologies of gender ideology, and they came out in favor of teaching our toddlers about what it means to be gay or transgender or this or for that. And it was really the beginning, in many ways, of this national conversation as to what we are teaching our kids, what books are literally in the libraries when it comes to gratuitous sexual acts, when it comes to depictions of fornication of all these things that you know once upon a time back when i was growing up you know (laughs) was fairly common sense that we would not be teaching children with this and around that time it's a little legally complicated but around that time florida announced that it was going to abolish the reedy creek improvement district which is the legal body in central florida outside orlando in the Kissimmee area that the Walt Disney Company had effectively controlled since the late 1960s, back when Florida was mostly just a swamp and when they were desperate for for new tourism and new revenue and new people to flood into the state, they essentially gave Walt Disney and his company an, an extraordinarily favorable, blatantly cronyist tax and regulation deal where they would control all the all the public works, the fire department, the water, the, the properties, the zoning, all of this and all of that. And it was around this time in 2022 that Florida began the process of abolishing this very cozy and cronious legal arrangement. It was followed by subsequent legislation last February, in February 2023. And this process ultimately reached its its fruition towards the middle of last year in, in 2023. So Walt Disney has filed litigation, as you might expect, and they alleged that the state of Florida violated their First Amendment rights. They basically said that Florida retaliated against them for speaking up in favor of indoctrinating kids in gender ideology, for speaking up opposed to the parental rights and education law. And we finally have a ruling. So yesterday, in a 17-page opinion, fairly short opinion, I might add, as a former federal law clerk, as I, I know a thing or two about this, fairly short opinion for a case of this magnitude. So the judge here, Alan Windsor, granted the state of Florida's motion to dismiss this case. And the legal analysis is actually very straightforward. So I'm just going to read from a little bit of the opinion and then just break it down for you. So 
Here on page 8 of the opinion, Judge Windsor writes, It is settled law that, quote, when a statute is facially constitutional, a plaintiff cannot bring a free speech challenge by claiming that the lawmakers who passed it acted with a constitutionally impermissible purpose. He's citing there a a case from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which is the appellate court overseeing Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, the case called Inri Hubbard from about nine years ago or so. And then in turn, Hubbard was simply relying on a 1968 United States Supreme Court case called United States versus O'Brien. The fact pattern here in O'Brien involves someone, this is during the Vietnam War era, of course, all the protests, the plaintiff here burned his draft card, his Selective Service Registration Certificate, in order to protest the Vietnam War. He was charged, he was prosecuted with violating a statute that prohibited knowingly destroying his draft card, and he claimed it was unconstitutional because the purpose of the statute was to suppress free speech. But here, the Supreme Court in the O'Brien case in 1968 said that it would be, quote, hazardous to go into trying to inquire into subjective legislative motive because, quote, you can't void a statute essentially on the ground that it is unwise legislation, which Congress had the undoubted power to enact and which could be reenacted in its exact form if the same or another legislator made a, quote, wiser speech about it. So this is fairly straightforward stuff as a matter of law here. Inri Hubbard, this 11th Circuit case from 2015, simply upheld this. And what Judge Windsor essentially is is holding here in the Walt Disney Company versus State of Florida litigation here is that he says, quote, a straightforward application of Hubbard resolves this case. As Disney appropriately acknowledges, the legislature can determine the structure of Florida's special improvement districts. Disney does not argue that the First Amendment or anything else would preclude the legislature from enacting the challenged laws without a retaliatory motivation. So what he is basically saying, what Judge Windsor is basically saying here, is that the state of Florida obviously, clearly, has the right to determine how its zoning districts, its special improvement districts, to use the particular jargon of the state of Florida, they obviously have the unambiguous plenary right to decide how these zoning districts and towns, for that matter, how they are structured. Towns are subsidiaries, villages are all, these are all subsidiaries of the state. They have to get a charter from the state. If you ever hear about how a town is chartered, that's because that's how it works. The only entities in this country that are truly sovereign entities are the national government and the state governments. The local governments exist as chartered subsidiaries of sorts of the state government. So that's how it works. I mean, that's a, that's a straightforward constitutional law 101 point, is that the states have plenary ability to restructure these special improvement districts when it comes to zoning, when it comes to who controls the flow of water, who controls property, who controls the fire department, all of the above there. And what he is saying is that you can't just simply say that there is a subjective motive to seek retaliation and that therefore that is your case there. It, it's ridiculous and absurd on its face. Think about this, for instance. Let's think about this. Let's think about the federal government, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, is about to engage in the process of handing out defense contracts. Let's say that there is a new company that is trying to challenge the good old boys, the Boeings, Northrop Grumman's of the world, companies like that. And 
let's say that the founder of that company is, oh, I don't know, let's say he is a U.S.-Chinese dual citizen who has substantial holdings with various private equity groups, to the extent private equity even exists, in Shanghai and has previously spoken out in favor of Beijing's crackdown in Hong Kong, has previously said that China should reunite Taiwan, to use the favorite language of the, of, the, of the PRC, and perhaps he's even said that China is not committing genocide on the Uyghur Muslims out in Xinjiang province. If you are making decisions on who to allocate defense contracts to at the Pentagon, if that is your task, well, first of all, if that's your task, you definitely have a lot of fat to trim in the first place, conversation for another day. But would it really be crazy to say that you would be engaging in First Amendment retaliation to either deny outright a defense contract to this hypothetical contractor or to cut or minimize the extent to which you're giving out money in the first place if you already have a contract with them? No, obviously not. Obviously not. You are clearly allowed to do this. There is nothing whatsoever that is unconstitutional about this. Florida, by analogy, has plenary power to decide how to restructure its special improvement districts. And oh, by the way, the deal that the Walt Disney Company had with the Reedy Creek Improvement District, again, was blatantly cronyist. They had so many more powers when it came to how to dictate and control their own local zoning ordinance than any other private company in the country, not just, this, not just the state of Florida, but the country. This all goes back, like I said, to 1960s-era tourism interests in Florida. Florida is a very different state today. Governor Sanders in the state of Florida obviously did the same thing here. I am deeply, deeply pleased to see that the U.S. District Court Judge Alan Windsor sees it the same way. Walt Disney is going to get their shot at the appellate apple. They will appeal it for sure to the 11th Circuit. Hopefully, hopefully the 11th Circuit decides to apply its own case law, and specifically this 2015 case called Inri Hubbard, in the same straightforward and persuasive manner that the district judge did here on Wednesday, January 31st. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine, enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now, the truth.